I need to tell you, um, you're going to need the right heart, the right mindset this morning if we're, as we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5 and we start Christ's Sermon of the Mount. Because, um, you know, if we're really going to be honest with Scripture, you know, a lot that we're going to look at today and we're going to talk about is, is maybe going to run a little bit against where maybe we have been living our faith. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And, and, and again, we want to prepare our hearts for this. And, and let me just, maybe to help prepare, let me ask you just a few questions. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, it's important everybody goes there. Let me ask a couple questions here. Number one, are you happy today in the stereotypical, this is what Christianity looks like in America? Are you happy in the stereotypical? stereotypical what I think America Christianity is. I mean, do you long for something more with God? You know, to not just talk about things like grace and mercy and love and, and forgiveness and purpose, but to really experience them, to really live joy and peace and, and a true intimacy with God. And then how far are you willing to go to rearrange your life to gain these things that you might be yearning for? Well, I want to set the stage here for us for this sermon, the Sermon of the Mount, um, probably the first of the major sermons that we have and the longest sermon that we have at least written down. Christ obviously preached many, many more, and this isn't the first one he preached, but this is actually the first major message that we have that was actually, you know, the Holy Spirit kept for us. And it's very, very important. Um, so let's just set the stage here. Christ is delivering this, this message, the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon of the Mount, He's delivering this message at the very peak of his popularity. I mean, we know things are going to get rough for Christianity. It's going to get rough for Jesus Christ. And we know the crucifixion is going to come and people are going to believe him, leaving him. But when this message is delivered, he is at the peak of his popularity. Matter of fact, if you're in chapter 5 there, if you just go back into chapter 4, the last verses, verse 23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, de demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So at the, the peak of his popularity, I mean, word is spreading. I mean, they didn't have the internet. They couldn't text. They, you know, they didn't have the, the, the news to spread it, but just word of mouth. And they are coming from all over, traveling great distances to hear Jesus. And so chapter 5 opens up. It says, when, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. So you kind of got to get a picture of what is happening here. I mean, great crowds. It doesn't give a number 
of how many are following. We know that, you know, at one point there were 25,000 plus women and children that were following him, and, and, and this would seem to be even a greater uh, a crowd that's following him. If you get a sense of it, we're going to go ahead and put a picture up here uh, if we can. This, this would kind of be the area that this happened. It says he was along in, in Galilee. Uh, we know that the, the city of Galilee is, is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And when it talks about him going up into the mountain, this is what it would, would, would have been referring to. I mean, we think about the Rocky Mountains, those sorts of mountains. That's not at all like it is in that. A little bit farther south in, in Jerusalem, you'll find those kind of mountains, but not here. But, it, it, but it's a, a range that kind of everything drains down into the Sea of Galilee. And this is a beautiful area. I've, I've stood there uh, four different times when I've had a chance to go to Jerusalem. And it, it's so cool because it kind of forms a natural amphitheater. And what my guess is that Jesus was probably, you know, down about lower and everybody else so they could see him is up higher. And one of the cool things um, in that area is, is when you talk, just naturally talk, your voice carries. I don't know if it's because of the water behind you or what it is, but you can, you can see how Jesus could be speaking to, to a great multitude here. And almost like a politician unveiling this new political platform. And people have been following him. And and he seems to kind of kick off, this is what the kingdom is going to be all about. Christ lays out for them. He lays out for us how we are to live. And and to fully, you know, get everything out of our faith. The full measure of our faith. And I warn you, again, we're going to be in this sermon probably at least for four or five weeks here. Um... I got to warn you, it goes against all of the philosophy of the world and the things that the messages that you're hearing on TV there and that you're seeing out in the world today. So with that, uh, let's start by looking at the Beatitudes this morning. I'm going to invite you, as we read beginning in verse 3 down to verse 12, if you'd stand together with me in, in reverence to God's word. Again, he said, he opens his mouth, he begins to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the Gentile, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the, for, your, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets... Who were before you? Maybe see that. So, what meaning can these beatitudes have for society like ours that honors a, a self-assertiveness, you know, uh, confidence, richness? You know, we live in a dog-eat-dog world. How can this message be for a society like ours? I mean, if we were writing the Beatitudes to be what, we would say, you know, be happy and be strong. You know, you know blessed are those who hunger for a good time. 
Blessed are those who look out for number one. I mean, that's our society's beatitudes. Matter of fact, some secular psychologists have actually pointed to the beatitudes as proof that Jesus saying Jesus was imbalanced. I read one quote here. It says, this is from a psychologist, secular psychologist. It says, the spirit of self-sacrifice which permeates Christianity and is so highly prized in the Christian religious life is, uh, is misogynism moderately indulged. A much stronger expression of it is found in Christ's teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. This blesses the poor, the meek, the persecuted, exhorts us not to resist evil, but to offer the second cheek to the smiter and to do good to them that hate you and forgive men their trespasses. All this breathes of misogynism. So according to this psychologist and some secular psychologists, we are Christians here because we like getting kicked around. You know, we, we like being abused. And, and somehow there's something mixed up with us and there was something wrong with Jesus that would even highlight these types of traits. So we have to ask ourselves, which is it? Misogynism or is there profound wisdom? Is there profound truth in what Christ is putting out here? And we also have to remember that the people who originally heard this sermon, you know, some 2,000 years ago when Christ preached it, they were no different than we are today. The same sin, the same struggles that we have, they have. I mean, we know Israel was looking for a powerful Messiah. They wanted a deliverer, someone who would lead them in a military battle, give the Romans their comeuppance. They had the same pride. They had the same jealousy. You know, they had the same lust. Everything that we deal with today. This isn't a message that applied back then, but now, hey, our culture is different. You know, this message is for us. We all need this message. You know, maybe some of the circumstances have changed a little bit, but the very heart of the message is for Christianity today. And what I want to do, uh, something a little bit different, um, I want to apply this message, these, these verses that I've just read here, I want to look at them as a whole, look at them all together, and then possibly next week we'll kind of break them down and look at them individually. But I, for, I want to first look at them you know, as an overview of what it's talking about here. I want to talk about three things. Uh, they're there for your out, in your outline here. I want to first talk about the promises that are given here. It says in verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, they shall be comforted. It talks about inheriting the earth, that they will be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called the sons of God. Now, some people, as again, commentaries I've read here, have tried to, you know, kind of discount this as kind of just Jesus throwing the unfortunate a bone, you know, an, an olive branch in life. You know, since, you know, you're not rich, you're mourning, you know, your health is failing, you're in pain, you're in suffering. You know, he says, one day it's going to be made right to you. And you get to eternity and everything's going to be made right. That somehow that Jesus Christ is just tossing them some breadcrumbs. But that's not that at all. This message here is central for us to understand how we should live our faith today. It's going to speak to the motivation for Christians of why we do what we do, 
why we live like we live. Why do we practice like we practice? What is God calling us to? And no, it's not that we like getting kicked around, but there is a promise, there is a hope that is coming ahead of us that regardless of our culture, regardless of being dismissed, regardless of the persecution that might come because of your beliefs, regardless of the rejection that you might feel in your family amongst some, you know, when you stand for Jesus Christ, regardless that we are going to stand true to Christ. We don't pursue abuse, but the threat of it doesn't determine our truth. God's holy word is going to determine the truth for our life. And, and if you really think about this, this message and the uniqueness of it, of every, anybody who is alive on earth, maybe who has ever been alive on earth, Jesus is the only one who actually has lived already on the other side. All that we're looking for, heaven, eternity. Christ came down out of heaven. He came out of eternity. And so he knows well what is ahead in the kingdom of God. And, and, and so as he's putting that before us, that, that motivation to live as a Christian, that decisions that we make to say, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? You know, suddenly we don't make those determinations based on how it will make my life easier or how will it make me more popular or wealthier or more content. But we make these decisions in our faith based on the pursuit of heaven. There's pursuit of the kingdom of God, the pursuit of eternity. That's, why, that's what's motivating us. That's what you know, drives us to stand regardless of what's going to happen. And even though you know, Christ is acknowledging, when you stand for me, you know, you're going to be persecuted. When you stand for me, you're going to be mocked. You know, you might not, it might not get you that promotion. It might not make you popular. But again, we are living for something that is to come. So there's a promise that's there. Okay, that's the one level I want to point out. I want to talk to you about a second application of these. I want to talk about the great reversal here. The, the Beatitudes describe the present as well as the future. We, we say, obviously, there are things that are driving us in eternity and, the, and a heaven that we're living for, but they're not a situation where the Beatitudes are saying, well, you're going to be miserable here, but someday, you know, you're going to have heaven. What the Beatitudes is doing is they are speaking to heaven, they are speaking to eternity, but they're speaking to the here and now. What they offer us in this life is greatly, you know, reversed from what the world defines that will bring us joy and purpose and happiness. I found a quote from J.B. Phillips. He was kind of trying to summarize the world's beatitudes. And he says this, Happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are they who complain, for they get their own way. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sin. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. See, our society... You know, it's survival of the fittest. You know, what does it say? The one who dies with the most toys, you know, wins. But Christ is asking about a great reversal here. And I think if we all step back and from time to time that we have delved into these areas of what the world says is happiness, 
of how we should be blessed and you know find meaning and purpose i think we could all to attest to the vanity of vanities as we have pursued those things and christ is asking us to reverse our thinking of what is really of value and meaning and purpose and the true priorities that we have in our life i mean just take you know specifically verse three i said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know anywhere out in the world that says pursue poverty, you know, in, in any level, whether it's, you know, emotionally, morally, um, financially, whatever it is. I mean, that's not even in the DNA of the world. But if you think about the situation that, that you know, Christ encountered when he was on this earth, how different the world would react in some of these situations. I remember the one time when Christ was walking, it says there was a rich, young religious ruler who came to Christ seeking eternal life. Now, how does the world respond to something like that? Well, the world would see him as this great asset to the ministry. Wouldn't it be great if he got saved and became part of our church? Just think how influential he is and the difference that he could help make and think of all the great resources that would be available to us. But... Christ sees through all of these things. And Christ is more concerned with his soul than with his bank account and with his resume. And so what does Christ do? He doesn't water down the truth. You know, he can see into the heart of the man that the idol that he had was his riches. And so he addresses that. He addresses the man's riches. Tell him to sell all and, and come follow after him. And we all know the end of the story that, you know, the, at least for the moment... He walked away. Again, you know, Christ goes to the heart of what truly would bring him happiness, not the things that he was resting upon. And when the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, it's not that the poor are somehow more virtuous than anyone else. The issue is they are less likely to pretend to be virtuous. They are blessed, the poor are blessed, poor in spirit, because of this innate advantage they hold over those who maybe are more comfortable or self-sufficient. In other words, the poor in spirit, they see their need. They see their need for God in places that maybe others don't see their need because of their wealth or their stature or their looks or their giftedness that they might have. People who are rich and successful, people who are beautiful, they may well go through life relying on these natural gifts. But people who lack such natural advantages, they have this, this, those who are underqualified, let's say, for success in our world today, they just might turn to God in their time of need because they see themselves as poor in spirit. Again, it's not the stature that God favors, the poor over the rich or whatever it might be, but poor, you know, it's the realization of the person's need and that's why he you know he uses this, this poor in spirit you know that because they can surrender they can seek god's blessing because they don't rely on themselves and the same truth with mourning and hungering for righteousness those who are merciful those are you know seek after purity they're in the right place to find god and, and to see god and for god to move in their life and and, and for god to truly touch them so on this, let me, let me ask you a question here. We're going to get to this at the, at the very end here. Um, let me ask you this. As, we look, as you look at your life, 
and how you are living your Christian faith today. As you read the Beatitudes, do they sound like good news to you? Are they kind of reaffirming your commitment? Are they reminders to you of you know, what you want to be and who you want to be? Or as we read them, does it sound more like God is scolding you? That God is calling you out? We're going to get to that at the very end of the message. We're going to talk about that a little more. Let me, let me move on, though, to the third level I want to emphasize uh, from the Beatitudes. I want to talk about the reality of life. The reality of life. Not only did Jesus offer an ideal for us to strive for, you know, with appropriate rewards in view, and then he, you know, he turns the tables on our success-addicted society, he also sets forth... Uh, a plan, a formula, a truth that we can know here on earth. It's not just about the future. Hey, you have this looking for in the future. This is something for us today as Christians to live our life by. The Beatitudes reveal that what success, what succeeds in the kingdom of heaven also benefits us here in this life that we're living right now. I mean, just look for a moment at these Beatitudes you know, the emphasis is on character. You know, the, the quality of our character. Not on self-sufficiency, but poor in spirit. You know, mourning for others. It talks about a gentle, strength and control spirit. It talks about hungering and having a, a, a desire for righteousness. It talks about being merciful people and, and people who live in purity and, and people who are peacemakers. And in our heads, we know that these are characters that we desire. We admire them. Whenever we meet somebody, you know, that, you know, can just mourn and grieve and, with other people and come alongside of them, we admire that, don't we? You know, we admire that person that's gentle, that strength and control, um, you know, the person, the purity, the peacemaker. These are all qualities we admire, you know, but, but again, the world's allure of looks and money and influence and power. It's so easy to find ourselves walking that way just trying to fit in. You know, even though they run a grain against the grain of what we truly know in our heart, of what brings joy and purpose and happiness. These beatitudes, this is where God meets us. This is where when we talk about having a real, living, intimate relationship with God, this is where the rubber meets the road, where God comes into our hearts and God speaks to us and communicates and reveals himself to us. When we give up on our self-reliance and we cry out to God in need because we are poor in spirit, God is there. He meets us there. When we are broken in sorrow, God wants to touch us and, and give us hope. A humble spirit that seeks others first. That's something that God can bless. When we crave the truth and we, when we crave righteousness, there is a fulfillment that we never knew, you know, versus living secret lies. When I am rich in mercy, you know, when I... You know, God can be merciful back in my life because I need mercy as well. You know, God reveals himself to those who are pure in heart. 
I read a quote by uh, Francis Merrick. He was writing about the purity of heart, that, that beatitude, and he looked at our possessions and looked at the lust, the darkness of our hearts. You know, whether that darkness in, is in the sexual area or greed or pride. And he said this. He said, all of those things are like a tidal wave, powerful enough to bear away our best intentions. And so as Christians, we know these things. We know we want to pursue them. Even by, by sampling it, in times we know that they are best. But all these things of the world, he said, they're just like a tidal wave that it's so easy for them to, to wash away those things. And he said, self-discipline and repression and rational arguments are inadequate weapons to use in fighting these impulses that we have towards impurity. He goes on and says, the, in the end, the only reason to be pure is my relationship with God. You know, impurity separates from God, and I want to have a relationship with God. I want to have that true intimacy with God. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have the facade, you know, of a, just the surface, but nothing deep down. When we give into our lusts, when we give into our sin, it's a weight, you know, that, that, that weighs on our relationship. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. You know, and doesn't that describe our sin? Whenever I have sinned or you, you, know, you found yourself in sin, that entangling of it, that mess, one lie leads to another lie or, or one misstep leads to another misstep. It just entangles us. Cast those away, he's saying. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. That's his call to us. That's his call to us to be different. You know, to, to, to seek those things that we know in our heart are truly meaningful. And we can try to manage our sin. You know, a lot of things help us manage our sin, whatever it is. You know, our greed, our lusts, our anger, our jealousies, whatever it might be. You know, we, the fear of getting caught helps, you know, we, we feel manage our sin or the consequences of what happens if I get caught or other people's disappointment with me if they knew this about me. Yeah, those things aren't enough. Ultimately, my passion to have a close, unfettered relationship with God is the thing that needs to drive me and to drive my life, to say no to looking at something, to walk away from doing something that I know I shouldn't be doing. And then Christ reminds us in verses 10 through 12 that any earthly loss, when we make that decision to walk away, when we choose Christ... Any earthly loss that you and I may suffer, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's financial, whatever it might be, anything harm you may suffer for standing with Christ and not standing with the world, any persecution is going to be far outweighed by what God will give you and what God will be to you. He says in verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted. For the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Don't rejoice and be glad because you were persecuted, 
but knowing that you stood, that you were firm, that you held on to something that was real. And God can bless that. Your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, this is powerful, folks. This is, this is life-changing to our faith. That it's about Jesus Christ. It's about eternity. And yes, all these things, you know, living my faith is going to matter here and now. But one day, one day God says, it's all going to be made right. And that's, that's the, that, that is what can stand against the tidal wave of loss that we might face or ridicule or persecution, you know, as small as it is in the United States today, that, that seems to, to kind of dictate and toss us to and fro. Only my commitment, only my focus on there is something better that God has for me. And the one who has already been there, the one who has seen it, the one who knows, the only one who can really talk about it has said it's waiting for me. And every child of God of his. Philip Yancey, I'll end with this quote. Philip Yancey says, in the Beatitudes, strange sayings that are at first glance seem absurd, Jesus offers a paradoxical key to abundant life. The kingdom of heaven, he said, elsewhere is like a treasure of such value that any shrewd investor would in his joy sell all that he has in order to buy it and to own it. It represents value far more real and permanent than anything that the world has to offer us. For this treasure will pay dividends both here on earth and also in the life to come. Jesus places the emphasis not on what we give up, but on what God gives us in return. And so as I close here today, again, I want to circle back so what are these beatitudes to us? How, what's our reaction to them? You know, is it an affirming of our faith? Does, do they bring us joy to hear the, them and an encouragement? Or is it a chastising of our faith? Regardless, we want to allow God's word to have its work in, in our heart. And so what I want you to do, if you would, with me, I want you to just bow your heads for a moment here. And just quietly, I am going to read the beatitudes one at a time. And then I'm going to give us a moment of reflection. You just to talk, to pray, to maybe do a little bit business with God, and then I'll go on and I'll read the next beatitude and on down the line. All righty? So just put our heart before God. This is between you and God. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy.
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, God, that it, it is piercing to our hearts. Father, regardless of what people can see of me on the outside, Lord, you know my, my heart. You know what I need to hear, and you know of each and every one of these beatitudes, these calls to my Christian faith. And so I ask that you will continue to move through us, Lord, not just here, but, you know, throughout this week, if there's a specific area you have called us to, to shore up in our faith, that we would. Father, if there's a specific encouragement that we needed that that verse will continue to come back to us when we are standing for you but above all lord i just thank you i thank you father for helping us you know see through the fog of this world to see what is real to see what we have been originally created for and what is ahead for us and help us to rejoice and be glad for great is our reward in heaven thank you lord in thy name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.